0: Hello, everybody. Welcome to the Doomer Optimism Podcast. Um, I am here with Joseph, the Homestead Padre, and I feel like he's been in our Doomer Optimism circles for so long. And I just felt like this is such an oversight. He should have been on the pod at some point. Um, He's been a teacher in my classes, he's like an inspiration for so many people. Um, you know, a lot of times when people are listing off people in the doomer optimism sphere, they're like, Yeah, like Padre, you know, he does such good stuff. Um, he's so impressive what he can accomplish. So, I figured let's get him on, let's talk about his, um, you know, homestead life, his journey there, um, and you know, just, just chit chat. Um, so let's start. Padre, by having you just kind of introduce yourself, talk a little bit about how you got into homesteading or why, um, and then we'll go from there.
1: Okay. Um, My name is Joseph, everybody, if you don't know. Um, I started homesteading, um, I got interested about 12, 13 years ago. Um, I lived inner city uh, in, in central North Carolina. Um, was in a was in a poverty area. Worked a job where I made minimum wage. Um, struggled with food, things like that. It really came about, I guess, 2008 with the uh, market crashes and everything. That hit my job hard, and uh, my finances hard. And um, I got to thinking about uh, other means of providing for myself, other than going to work nine to five, buying everything at the grocery store, and whatnot. So I took this little journey back in time um, one weekend over a lot of alcoholic beverages. When I was younger, my mom would send me to my great-grandmother's house in Virginia for the entire summer. And Grandma Dean had an acre, acre and a half garden. And that's all I did from sunup to sundown. She had me work in that garden, pulling me, picking vegetables, picking bugs off plants. And I hated it. Oh, I hated it. You know, I'm, this—I'm talking from eight years old to maybe 14 years old. That's where I spent every summer. Yeah. And uh, then when I got into high school, uh, we had a little garden out back. Like nothing, nothing fancy. We wasn't replacing groceries or anything. Just stuff we wanted to make us keep in And uh, I was like, I'm gonna, I'm gonna take all that, and I'm gonna, I'm gonna plant a garden.
0: Mm.
1: Yeah. I I remember nothing. I really, other than actually physically doing labor, I remember nothing about gardening. My first year was, uh, so our backyard was completely shaded out all day long. Just big hickory trees everywhere. My first garden failed at every Just <laughs> absolutely. We're talking summer of 2008, 2009, I've been 2009. And, uh, so I walked to the local library, just started reading books, every book I could find on gardening, And that led me into, I found some books from the 70s on homesteading. And I got to reading about reading those and I got interested in that. And I was like, I think, I think this is the life that I want. I think I really want to try this. So that that's kind of the beginning of, of, every, of where I'm at now, of my whole
0: um, okay, so going back, did you, you, you said your your grandma had a big garden. Talk to me a little bit about like, um, we had a whole episode called Grandpa Stories. And it was like people talking about what it was like with, with their grandpas and the kind of things that they showed them. Like, did you have a family history of um just like a kind of subsistence um kind of homesteading was that common across your family outside of your grandma um did you feel like your generation kind of moved away from it or like your parents what like what's the whole background story with that
1: really my parents did so my great grandpa died before i was born he was a coal miner he died a black one and um it was really my great grandmother none none, my grandma my great-aunts great-uncles none of them did that they all left the rural mountains of Virginia, headed to Winston Salem, Greensboro, or one okay. of the bigger cities, and, and they they completely left the rural lifestyle. So I was not raised whatsoever in that. Um My grandparents on my dad's side, they had some chickens. Uh Once my grandpa retired, he, he bought he built the chicken They did I don't even think they had a farm, but like Okay. So now it, it's. Not, um,
0: so was I there ever, was there like now that you're back doing this, is there any conversation with your family like what do you do when we left this <laughs> or no,
1: or no no um i don't I don't really talk to or her hear okay everybody it was one of those when uh great grandma died and then my grandmother died. everybody just kind of dispersed I get it, yeah. No no
0: contact with each other. Um, And then another background question I have for you is the following. A lot of people I talk to, men and women both, say like they can't find somebody who would be into homesteading. Um, Like, for example, a young man, like I can't find a wife who who would be like on board with this. And it's usually in that direction that I've talked to at least, like men who can't find women who will be on board. So I'm curious how did it go with your wife and family? Like how did you negotiate that? Like we want to go rural again. Um how how did how did she get on board? Um and yeah, I want to hear a little bit about like what it's been
1: like with the kids too. So so Melody had a little bit more she was she was raised very rural, uh, probably more rural than I was, I didn't think that was possible. But um she uh wasn't in the gardening or anything like that her grandmother did it so she had the memories of it. and then uh we moved to south mississippi we moved into the city um the first week there there was a drive by on our road uh drug house a couple houses down uh, fast forward three months and we come home to a bullet hole through the window my god and uh, we were like we're done with this so pre-katrina we both had lived in um, her in the army, she, she went to the city base for training, and me, my dad, sister. and uh, that's why we decided to come here. First, like to hear here, here. before I had family down there. She doesn't really have family at all. And, uh, so yeah, we were in the city three months, and we were like, uh, we, we gotta get away. <laughs> so, yeah. it, it didn't. Uh, in the city, I had planted the garden. So I did still have that aspect going on and she was cool with it as long as you know, she wasn't, i say she wasn't knowing much, but she was a trooper. She dug like a 300 square foot garden area with a like She got out there just at
0: Yeah.
1: Uh, so, um, uh, no, it was just luck of the girl. We found where we're living at now on Craigslist. Really? Um, and, um, it was a three bedroom two bath house, three acres of land, seven hundred dollars, and uh that's what we were paying in the city for two bedroom one bath and a little while so got out here talked to the guy uh older guy liked him a lot, he liked us, and uh so we moved in in October, and we didn't do anything from October till February or March we're twenty thirteen only into twenty so uh I asked him that March, I was like, Can I have a cart? I could just three acres of land here, can I cut out all the stuff?" And uh, at, at at this point in time we've already been pulling the farmers' markets, buying food, canning food. So we were, we've we've already been getting into the part of the homesteading lifestyle, we just don't produce it. Yeah. So he's like, Yeah, he's like as far as I'm concerned, if you're paying rent, that's yours. Do whatever you want.
0: Oh, that's cool. I
1: was like, Okay. So First year we had a garden and uh, that March I did have a whole little garden area, probably a thousand square feet. And uh my wife was like I want chickens. And I was like, All right, so let me go talk to uh, the landlord. He's like, I done told you, do whatever you want back there. Uh, as long as you're paying rent, it's yours.
0: Yeah.
1: Okay. <laughs> so uh five chickens that year, then come August, uh, a guy I worked with had goats, he had to get rid of some get too many he's like you want it? so again I, I called my landlord he's like man I done told you <laughs> so um, i very fortunate What we, uh, as far as a landlord doing that I know uh Jordan rents, yeah Jordan. so the, the rental is a, is a possibility we've been here 10 years now the 11th of October and uh, this year we're actually looking fine.
0: nice.
1: He's sixty-nine years old. He doesn't want to deal with it anymore. And uh, he's like, you have already paid me about eighty grand." He goes, "I'm thinking 70, 80 grand for the rest of."
0: It. Oh my god! Wow! Yeah.
1: Wow! So uh, we made that transition, which is great because our daughter came home from the hospital here, and my wife's like I want to leave home or Well, it's that's the. Uh, the next journey i've never bought from home yeah that's my next
0: yeah um i would i just want to say
1: it's,
0: it's like crazy i think a lot of people don't realize this but there are a couple of people in our sphere who have done rental and it's fine you know it's fine you can do you can use parcels of land sometimes it's with a home or without like jordan hedberg he um like rented a home separately and then was was renting out parcels of land and like running a grass-fed beef business um, on rented pieces of property, it's also very common in agriculture to rent um, land to use. Um, the only problem, of course, is the um, then your margins of like what you produce if you're renting, you know, a piece of land even separate from a home, then you have to make sure you're like earning enough and it's hard to earn enough on the land you you use. But Jordan, I think, does a really good, Um, business and in your case the land like came with the rental property of the home that was the same as the city so that's definitely a possibility a lot of people say like i can't get onto any land like i wouldn't be able to afford it and i think they should try to think outside the box a little bit especially if you can think about what you're paying in the city and you, you can find a lot of rural places um for a lot cheaper than what you would be paying for rent in the city um and then, obviously, there's the question of work,
1: you know, but... Um. Yeah, I try to encourage people, like, you know, as, especially people getting into homesteading, I might find a place in the country. Most rural landlords will let you grow a garden and, and have three or four times. You know, that that is enough to get a taste
0: mm-hmm.
1: of it and, and try it out for a couple of years. Yeah, And if you pick like it, then you can move on the bigger plane. Because how many people buy a property they're going to homestead two years later, they're way over their head. And now they're stuck. With all stuff. Right.
0: Yeah. And and then if you rent, it's just kind of like, okay, well this, I tried it. This wasn't for me. You know, I'm going to leave when my lease is up or whatever. Um, gives you a little chance to try it out. Um, Yeah. Okay. So let's talk more about what, how did this evolve from 2013 in terms of your practices, the kinds of things you guys got into. I know you do, more so than other people in our sphere, do like all sorts of products. The candles, the soaps, um, talk, to, talk to me about like how you got into all of those different things. Cause I think for a lot of people, they just think like, I just don't know anything. How can I get into this stuff, you know? And so talk to like, encourage us about how to how to like be self-taught, but also just experiment and try stuff out. And then yeah, tell us what you specifically did. That would be fun to hear.
1: So, uh, brief background going into it. So, my daughter was born in 2015 on um, <laughs> June. It was like February of that year. We saw a documentary about processed foods, and my wife was like, uh, "We come out of that documentary." My wife was heavier than me on it at first. She was like, "I'm feeding my daughter on this junk," you know. She's like, baby eats what I eat. And we got all these chemicals and preservatives. Like, all right. So we kind, of, we kind of shipped it to an organic-based diet. And uh, I'd already started thinking at that point, I was like, well, next year's garden bigger. Because we can't afford organic. Right. So um, the, we kind of went that route. And then, then we watched another documentary about the chemicals that's in your shampoo, in your, soap, in your household. Mm. So it was kind of like in all these Netflix documentaries. Then I got to thinking, I was like, we uh it's like I don't I don't want any of that um with my family. So I started doing my own research. Got on the internet I think, hundreds of years of studies and manufacturer claims and FDA government claims and the, uh, alternative research claims. So I finally made the decision that you know, we're just gonna this. We're gonna get rid of all this. And uh I was I was a consumer. I was going to farmers markets. I was looking for handmade soaps. I was looking for. Uh, there's a guy at a farmers market that, that I'm at now. He sells laundry he makes five gallon buckets of it. He sells, and so uh, well, that's expensive. And um, I was like, why well, can't we do this ourselves? And um, then we got thinking about all the products. That- place. So you know, household cleaners, uh, processed foods. Uh, look, we, we even ripped the carpet out of the house after we found out all chemicals. And uh, we got fortunate our septic pink backed up into the house, called the landlord, and I was like, can I just rip the carpet out? And he's like, yeah, just rip it out. <laughs> but I was able to get rid of that. So it was, that was but we uh, yeah, just a couple documentaries stuck it in our heads. A lot of internet research, and and when I actually got to the point of doing it, YouTube. YouTube was my best. Mm. I wasn't on Facebook. I wasn't on Twitter. Um, I really had no, no social media. So uh, YouTube's where I went to find. People. Yes. It's, it's easier than the library, and I can watch somebody show me how to do it.
0: Right. Right. Um, And okay. so what do you think about uh, a lot of times when I talk about, um, you know, all this homesteading self-production stuff? And I say a lot of it has to do with like, I don't want to feed my kids X amount, this kind of food. Um, I don't want to be like just exposing myself to this amount of chemicals. People will say, oh, that's like you know bougie or lib or whatever like and so I wonder and then my response is just you know I think about my neighbors in Uruguay who are like you know kind of traditional family small-scale family farmers and the way that they access alternative products is they make it themselves. And then it's actually very cheap. Um, but a lot of people say, well, I just can't afford organic or I can't afford like these fancy soaps and stuff like that. And that's just like something rich people to, for, should care about. Um, so I wonder your thoughts on the class question because a lot, we get a, we get that a lot, like only, only rich, you know, bougie consumers can care about this kind of stuff. And in my experience, that's not true. Um But yeah, I wonder what your re- retort to that is.
1: We are, we are raised to be consumers, right? Uh, in, in America, yeah. In Western society, if you want it, go buy it. Work hard, make money, go buy it. Right. Um, so yeah, I ran into that. I can't afford this. Right. And uh, that's exactly what drove me into making this. Right. So. so People that do that, um, I'm gonna sound me and, and say it to me and on myself You know, you it's it's easier to buy your way yeah Right person's so let me let me go live I make home. Um it takes me to cook it, store it, stir it, shake it, set it. It's about twenty hours and I'm getting about five gallons and I spent about five bucks um you can't get that right I don't care if you're about to keep stuff you're not going to get that. um but you got to do it you have to take the 30 minutes to shave the soap that you, I use soap that I made in space so I have to I have six weeks of my soap then I shave that and I take 30 minutes to shave now I think I think some people just don't want to do it Like I don't think some people want to it and that's fine um, I don't want to work it but they still should kind of act like, like I guess it's almost uh, a hot topic And uh, I know people personally can talk it, and in the background they don't care, right? And and that's fine. But you don't have to make an excuse and drag other people because I've seen them drag people. Oh, you don't half a day to make make this which is fine. I mean, that's my intent, right? So yeah, it, it it exists. It's you gotta have money to, because I'm not gonna sell you a bar soap dollars. I'm gonna sell you a bar of six dollars. Yeah, I have the time in the internet. You know, a batch of soap takes six weeks Right. And you're gonna pay me for that. It. So but uh, if you
0: do it yourself, then that's the t- time. Maybe you would be spending doing something else, like leisure activity, whatever you know, where you're like, okay, well, I could do this I, if I have the extra time and save myself the money. Um, that it's a different thing. It's a different calculation. I also think like a lot of people just, I mean, I know people work, some people work really long hours, but a lot of people like just aren't um, used to any kind of self-production and just think like either it's inaccessible to me or I don't have time to do that or I don't even know how to get started. So then they come up with these excuses and act like it's just a a class thing. But I think, yeah, they really just haven't. Yeah.
1: It's not a lot of point point uh I told a guy the other day, I was like, You you watch Netflix or anything like that, you have a TV show. like, Yeah. I was like, in the time it takes you to watch one TV show, so like, oh, gosh, I can cook up a batch of so. Wait, wow. And get it afforded a mold." So, you know, it's it's time management. It's what what do you want to do with the fun? We all need to we all need time to read a book or like, every night I sit down for like an hour at kind of Just to get my mind up just but how many people will come home and watch three hours before? right uh, I'm 40 years old I still play video so I know <laughs> there are other girls um but you can't take 30 minutes of your time out of that to do something but again you, you touched on the point I don't think a lot of people have the confidence. So, yeah um uh, I was so nervous. I was like, I don't know what I'm doing. I'm messing with lie. You Got to add light to water first. Because if you add water to light, it's gonna explode. You know, it, it's, <laughs> uh, it's it's and you're not used to it. Um,
0: wait, Padre. Let's um, let's turn our videos off and put your um mic a little closer to your mouth. Um, let's turn videos off so I can hear you a little better. Um, okay. So talk, wait, I would love to hear, okay. Talk me through the first time you made. soap. how did you like get the, like, how did you find out what to do? Um, and then talk me through like how you actually did it. Um, you know, just give us an idea of what it's actually like. Cause I think that's a very rare skill in our, in our group. I mean, some people make soap, but it's not very common.
1: Um, Google. I found I found a recipe on Google. Okay. It wasn't wasn't a great recipe, but it was one that worked. Okay. So uh and I'm reading the warnings about lye and all this stuff. I'm like Yeah, they're talking about you, know, you gotta do this step right, or it's gonna explode if you get it on your hand or your skin. So I'm I'm sitting here with goggles and latex gloves and I look like I'm in a laboratory. I take everything outside, like I'm yeah. get it in the house. And I'm so scared of this stuff. And I read the instructions five times on, uh, do I add lie to water or do I add water to lie? Yeah. So I put the lie in the water, and uh, I, I jump back. Like, I get back really quick. I don't know what's going to happen. And, and I'm sure, looking back, on i is very common. Um, I got the kids in the house. I'm like, y'all can't come outside. I'd watch the, the dad figures out what he's doing. And that, that way, if anybody is injured, I'm the only dumb one here. Right. They so get that mixed, and and then uh, I see steam coming out, and I'm like, "There's the deadly toxic." Because so the article I read was like warning you against me. Right. So I'm I got I got my respirator on from when I uh, uh, working in the shop with sawdust and everything. So I have my respirator on, trying to keep the fumes out, and uh, nothing happened. The glass jar got really really hot. From the chemical reaction and I was like okay so after uh I felt safe enough and I had the thermometer in there and I was checking the temperature because you got to reach the oil is going to be a certain temperature your live water has, and uh, once everything matched I'm carrying this jar inside the house like as far away from my body as possible like I'm only going to lose my left hand here like still right stuff so. yeah and um uh, got in there poured it in the oil Got the stirring, and then I started watching all the magic happen. And this particular recipe was straight vegetable oil in the grocery store. And uh, I watched it turn into this cream color. Then, then I put a stand mixer, a hand mixer in there. I'm moving it around, and I'm getting this pudding consistency. I'm like, this is everything the instruction says, okay. and I'm starting to get excited at this point. Right. Like I'm doing it, and. Uh, I don't remember what I did wrong, but that first batch failed.
0: Oh, really? Okay.
1: Um, I cannot. That's been so long ago. <laughs> first <laughs> batch failed, so uh, we we tried it again same day. Pulled everything back out of the concrete right ground, and um, got it going, and and it, and it, it looked good. It looked perfect. It did. And uh, poured it in the molds, set it on the shelf for 24 hours to cool, poured those on the molds, and uh, I did it. I had soap, and I was reading, I was like, You gotta let it set four to six weeks. So I was like, Man, I don't want to wait that long. Um, uh, so cut, I cut it, was letting it set, used one bar immediately, it didn't work so well, so I got disappointed. And uh, there was a lot of impatience that. Right. And, uh, I tried a bar a week, every week for six weeks. Uh, at that point, I was experimenting to see what the difference was. Right. And I could really see the soap coming together. You, by week four, week five, it was looking like soap. It was sudsing up real pretty. Um, it just smelled really bad. Again, because it was just exploding on my water, it'll clean you. Right. <laughs> I mean, it went. It went like a, a really nasty smell. It just I call it the clean smell. You didn't get the clean smell. Okay. For me, that's something florally or something sweet, or or I think soap has its own smell as it is. When I use when I used, when I used uh, grocery store soap, Gain, gain was my product. I gain smelled so um yeah, it was it smelled like burnt
0: oil that's what it smelled like so <laughs> it worked yeah okay it got you clean and so then what so then what happened with your soap making over time like did you change the recipe did you add did you add more scents to it to get that to try to approximate that soap smell that you were used to or how did you adapt over time then Sorry, coughing. Um,
1: okay. we, um, I was like, it worked, but it, it didn't work well. Um, I mean, it worked well, which is what we wanted. So um, I did a lot more research, and I was like, well, do I have to use vegetable oil? And basically, any fat works. Okay. So we started experimenting with uh, sunflower oil, coconut oil. We used coconut oil. That's the only oil base for the longest time. Okay. At, um. And then my wife was getting into uh, uh, essential oils. So we started playing with that. There are different essential oils in there. Uh, the mica clay uh, for color. It, and it was really a process over about three years of colors and smells and figuring out how to blend different essential oils to create different smells. And uh, it, it, was, it was one big science experiment.
0: Yeah. And you know, sorry, go ahead.
1: I took the basic recipe, you know, if it was, I don't remember it now, but if it was three cups of vegetable oil, I was like, all right, let's do two cups of coconut and a cup of olive. And, you know, we just really started playing around with it like that.
0: Right. And honestly, I would just encourage people like listening to this story. I think this is how it goes for all of us. And for most of this um, stuff, like basically we're, A lot of us are just trying to relearn skills that we, um, that were lost. I mean, over the course of a couple generations, just were lost and it's going to be a little bit, um, you know, stop and go to, to get those skills back and to like, make it how you want it to be. Um, But it's fun too, you know, it's fun. And then in the end, you're like, look at us, we like actually are self-sufficient in this thing. Um, in a way that we, we never were before and like learned a lot of skills now can teach other people skills, which you did in the, um, home economics class and homesteading class, like teaching other people, these skills or or at least encouraging them. Like you can basically do it, you know, this is not rocket science, but it does take some process of like in, intention where you actually sit down and try to do a thing, you know, and, and keep iterating on it, you know, um, Another thing I wanted to ask you about if we're done on the soap for now is you're the small garden king. In my homestead class, you're the small garden guy. Um, So I'm wondering if you can talk to us about like your small garden philosophy, basically. Um, I know you can produce a lot in a small amount of space. And I think another thing in terms of access, a lot of people say they can't get... um, you know, they can't get onto some land or whatever. But you say, you know, just get going with a garden and you can produce a lot in a small amount of space and then just feel like very empowered by that. Um so yeah, talk to us about your small garden philosophy a little bit. That'd be fun.
1: I, I am I am a huge fan of intensive gardening. And um what that and what that is is the most amount of food and the least amount of space, right? So I I've I studied I studied all different things before I got to this point. I studied square foot gardening. I studied back to Eden garden, um, food forests. just, if it was there, I I researched it. And, um, I come up with, which apparently I'm not the only person to come up with this, but I credited myself for a while. Uh, a mixture of square foot companion planting. Okay. And how, and what that would look like is, um, so there, there's a girl local here. Um, she lives in an apartment. She has a, I think her balcony is three foot by six foot. Okay. And um, she was like, what can I do? I was like, well, we're going to get some, we're going to get you some containers plant. And uh, went over there and mapped out her balcony. I was like, how much sitting space do you want? How much garden space? She was like, one chair, fill the rest up with vegetables. I was like, Cool. So with uh, the Home Depot, we got some five-gallon buckets. We got some – Home Depot has these wonderful heavy-duty black plastic totes. Picked up uh, enough of those to to line the railing and where her apartment is. Uh, we had the challenge that she was facing east and not south. So I had to plan around that and, and look at which vegetables would, would do well uh, in the shade down here, which in um, South Mississippi, it gets really hot in the summertime. Right. So um, we do. We can do arugula, spinach, uh, lettuce, things like that. The leafy greens will will handle the shade really, really well. So what we end up doing is like um, she had two five-gallon buckets. Um, we did potatoes in those. So three inches of dirt in the bottom. She put her seed potato in. Eleven inches of dirt on top, and, and just let it grow like that. Yeah, yeah, I know a lot of people will uh they pile dirt as the potato plant grows, they pile dirt as the potato plant grows. Um one thing I do is the potato plant I mean you can't get obsessive like three feet deep. But if you plant it a foot deep or a foot and a half deep, it will shoot up through that. Right. Um you don't have to do that uh, dirt thing. So we we did eleven inches on top of the seed potato so that it had eleven inches of breadth before the, the the green I call the the green cap popped out and then uh inside the potato we did kind of think i think we planted parsley just yeah. once. so we planted parsley around the potato in the same bucket so the parsley was already getting growing well and we did uh maybe cilantro we did another herb in the other bucket so by the time the potato had reached the top and began shooting out, the herbs had already grown pretty well and the potato wasn't going to shade them out. In the totes, she wanted... Uh, we did a potato... Uh, I'm sorry, a tomato in one tote. Then around the tomato, we planted basil. And then around the basil, we planted uh, beets or bush beans. So by the time the basil got tall enough... And, and it's almost like the three sisters gardening. Right. Americans used to do. So you have to time it. So you can't plant everything and let it go. So once the tomato reached which she bought a start. So the tomato was already tall enough. We did the tomato, planted the basil. Once the basil got up to about eight inches, we planted the beans. So we gave everything a head start over the next one. Yeah. And um she she didn't replace her grocery bill. But um by the time we were done, she had squash growing out of hanging baskets down the railings. She had tomatoes and potatoes and uh cucumbers coming up the other side of the rail like we started using the the balcony setup itself instead of buying trellises and everything Uh. to to help everything grow and when you walked out onto her balcony she had her seat to the right which was just a little stool and she was just surrounded by green i love it and um she did really well that year um she's moved away now but she moved uh Purposely to a one acre plot. Oh, nice. Put a little house on it just so she could grow from what she was at.
0: Wow. That's um, so cool. I love that. And honestly, I, I tell people this and then I know that they they maybe think I sound stupid or something like that or like that. It's not that impactful. But people say, like, how do I get started? And I say, like, literally just do a container and potatoes because potatoes are actually like a huge calorie um crop relative Mm -hmm. to a lot of stuff in the garden and just see what you can make and even that process is like whoa look at what we were able to produce in such a small amount of space um without much commitment and you know and and it's also great to show kids you know like look we can do this let's water this and then let's harvest it and just getting that in their head about how it works to plant something and then harvest it and then eat it in the kitchen to just see that whole process. You don't need anything to get almost anything to get started with that kind of setup. Um, and it's extremely empowering and it's always like a gateway drug. <laughs> it always yeah. just leads to something else.
1: And when I was mentoring, that's what I challenged them with was a, put a potato in a five gallon bucket. Let's go. Yes.
0: yes. And, I
1: love um, that. And they did, and, and, and the students loved it, and they learned something, and, and the ones I talked to afterwards to talk to me directly felt empowered, exactly like you said.
0: Yeah, totally.
1: And, uh, you know, looking at that five-gallon bucket, like, I grew that, and then when they actually harvested it, got to eat some of the potatoes out of it. You know, it's a whole different feeling knowing that you raised that, and you harvested that, and you prepared it, and all that's your hard work.
0: right. And then you can, yeah, look at what you can show for it. And then you actually bring it into the kitchen and it's like an actual product that you're going to eat with your, in your life. It's, it's amazing. I think we're just so disempowered in general, like as consumers that our only power is consumer is to be a consumer, to make enough money so that we can consume anything we want, as opposed to, there's just something really magical and different about producing Um, briefly before we move on, I wanted to ask you to describe, um, what square foot gardening is, um, just to give people a little taste of that, because I think that's a pretty common, um, a pretty common one for a small garden, get people started with that if they're interested.
1: Okay. Um, I'll use, um, I'll use corn. So a typical corn row, you, you would plant rows, uh, 12 inches apart from each other and then you would have the corn plants thin to 12 inches from each other right and and that's how your your big ag plants are corn and everything so in square foot gardening what you learn is is there's enough space in one square foot you're literally creating a square in the dirt that's one foot by one foot and you can divide that into four smaller squares six smaller squares nine smaller squares and um what i teach or what i practice and teach is well you can fit four corn plants in that one square foot right corn needs to be in blocks anyway because uh so it can pollinate but then um we divide that into nine from there and then you can plant beans around the corn you can plant nine beans in that same square foot right and and we're getting and we're getting into three sisters here And well, once you have a a six by six square, six foot by six foot, and and you have, um, math isn't a thing this morning, was that 24 corn plants?
0: Yeah.
1: Um, Now you can put a a squash plant or a pumpkin plant in the dead middle of that six foot square. Right. So now now you have corn and you have beans and you have squash all growing in um, 36 square feet of area. Versus if you just did a six by six plot of corn, you would have 36 corn plants and nothing else growing there.
0: Right. And then on top of it, a lot of people tend to start by doing row plants because that's what they've seen, which the reason people do rows is because they work with machines. I mean, like you can harvest things in uh, industrial setting um by planting them all straight in a row and then the machines can pick them all up they plant them all straight and they they harvest them all straight but we there's nothing that's stopping a small scale gardener from doing any kind of configuration and the square foot is nice because i think that they tell you in the square foot gardening book to make it like at the biggest um 10 feet by 10 feet because then you can reach to the middle But basically the idea is you just make a box and you walk around the outside of the box um, and you work in those kind of squares as opposed to rows, which actually wastes a lot of space because you have a lot of walking paths between
1: rows. Right. Um, I I personally do five by five squares. Okay. That's, that's, and and a lot of that's for my children. Okay. So it's a lot easier for her to get in there and work with me. Right. Uh, in a five foot by five foot square, yeah, and and we have one foot of walking path between each square. Okay, so you go up there and look. There's there's just square after square after square, and all these little paths going between them.
0: Yep. Uh, speaking of that, how has it been with the kids um, these past ten years? T- tell me a little bit about what that that's been like having them be involved.
1: Um. Well, I started when. My daughter was first born. It was really the first year of that. So she was too small. So she's been raised with it. Okay. Uh, all she's ever known is dad does a garden in the summer. Okay. Um the youngest boy he um he's never really had an interest. Okay. In gardening. He's um he's he's more he's my bookworm.
0: Okay. <laughs> he,
1: he he would rather be tucked away in the corner of his room reading a book. Yeah. And, um, then the oldest boy um so the boys are my stepsons,
0: okay,
1: and just to clarify that um, I'm the only dad the youngest boy knows. He was three when me and his mom got together
0: okay
1: um, the oldest boy was nine it took It took a couple of years for him to uh get involved and a, a lot of a lot of uh, background I won't go into detail on, but basically his real dad became non-existent, and once he accepted that I was dad, right, he he began to be more active in the garden and with the chickens and with the goats. Um, and now at, at almost twenty years old, that this is his dream. He wants a big five ten acre farm and a tiny house, and like he said earlier, uh, having trouble finding a woman that shares that. <laughs> The 20 years old never had a girlfriend because he can't find one that has the same interest in it. Yeah. But, uh, yeah. Ladies
0: out there, get in touch with, uh, with Joseph if you're interested in homesteading somewhere in the deep south. Uh, maybe he can, he can screen you for his son, (laughs) potential girlfriend. I honestly get messages all the time from young women who are like, I can't find, you know, a man who's interested in this. I'm like, you gotta be in, you gotta like, I don't know how like how do you you just have to run in different circles I don't know if you go to like a yeah. farmer's market and I wanted to ask you about the farmer's market too like um, it is kind of a nice way it seems to meet other homesteading families and then potentially your kids are there you know you make friends with them you know the kids know we're both raised this way so maybe they end up making friends with each other like I'm wondering how that's been the farmers. I know you guys go there regularly. Um, how the farmer's market has been in your experience.
1: Um, the, the main one we do, uh, we've been there. We're going in for our third season at the okay. market. Um, we've made really good friends with, with, with a couple other families. My wife, she now has her group of her and three other women, um, all moms and wives. And, um, now once a month they go out and do their thing. Uh, but uh, my my daughter my daughter will have her pick of young men. Uh, <laughs> the 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 bad part for my older kids is is most of the families have younger kids. Right. Okay. A lot of a lot of younger families. Um younger than me and my wife. My wife's the oldest in her clique. And um this you know, we didn't have my daughter until we we're in our thirties. Right. So yeah, she's got her pick of young men that are country boys and, and uh the lady that does the, the main vegetable vendor her kid he's branched off he's now growing his own garden and he has his own booth he's selling his own vegetables he's nine oh wow yeah it's just the cutest coolest thing like i have chickens but i always go by a dozen eggs from week. just you know yeah. so you, just for encouragement more than anything
0: that that is so cute um yeah and i know roxanne was saying it it had like at least for her this is happy holistic homestead for those who don't know she was saying at her farmer's market like they also kind of at the end of the market each time do a little informal swap of things they haven't sold and that have too much of and i'm like oh how cool it's like really informal economies there
1: yep we have um we we have um down home mushrooms, which they have this beautiful little small scale mushroom growing setup, and um, her husband, um, which means he must become good friends. He is a lover of bread, all things bread, <laughs> and I I sell baked bread. So at the end of the uh, every every week, I come home with mushrooms, and he goes home with bread. Nice. Um, the the main vegetable lady, I I took home a small kiddie pool worth of corn last year for twenty bucks. Okay. Um, she had it left over. She's like, we don't want to haul this back out next week. I got 34 quarts of corn. Okay. Out of that once I processed it and canned it all. That's so um, it is a lot of corn. And, uh, so yeah, absolutely. We, uh, everybody swaps around when, yeah. when the last 30 minutes of market as it's dying down, we'll get out of our booth and start walking to other people's booths. Right. Um, uh, we pay cash for some things, we swap for some things. Yeah, that's and, uh, great. Um, it's not, not so much my wife's booth with the uh, candles and the, and the um, soap and things like that, but those of us with perishables, vegetables, yeah. mushrooms, fruits, bread. You gotta, uh, what we get
0: gotta get it. Yeah, you don't need 10 loaves of bread or whatever at home, but you can swap them for other
1: stuff, which is I got cool. half a deep freezer full of frozen bread loaves.
0: Okay. <laughs> And that's I'll, Another
1: way to do it. Yeah. yeah uh, you know, it'll freeze and maintain quality for ten months. Yeah. So, um, but it gets to the point where you're like, I got, I got twenty loaves of bread in the deep freezer. I don't want to take anything home with me.
0: Yes. Right. So, exactly.
1: Yeah. A, lot, a lot of swapping.
0: That's so fun. Um. Okay. So I also like to hear a little bit more about your animals. Um. And how you do goats. And chickens on top of the garden in such a small plot. Um, how do you run them? Yeah, like what? What is the what is the approach approach you take with the All right, so
1: The garden and the chickens are are very closely connected to each other. Okay. Um, in in that I have really bad soil here. It's mostly sand, not a lot of organic matter in it, and um, so the. I don't free-range my chickens. I don't chicken-tract my chickens. They're in a run for a specific reason. So they spend two years in that run, and then I move that run. Okay. Um, Where the run was at is my new garden area. Okay. So it's always rotating around so the chickens can keep the soil um, basically fertilized. With the goats and the sheep, uh, I use... All electric goat netting fencing. Okay. That we can move around. So uh, it, it is a lot of rotational grazing. My my goats and sheep don't spend more than two or three days in one spot. Okay. And then I intentionally let the back side of the property grow up. They go back there once every three months. Got um, it. I, do, I, I just let it go wild, and then I send them back there to clear it all down.
0: That's so great. What and how did you first hear about rotational grazing? To be able to set up a system like that, because I I honestly feel like uh, different people are coming to it in different at different stages. You know, was it that just part of all your homesteading reading, or like how did you get Uh, into that? I
1: I had read about it, um, but hadn't practiced it. It was kind of like uh, something I come across, read, okay, that's neat, and get going. And uh, that was really before we got in. At that time, we had like two goats. Okay. And uh, we had a hundred foot by hundred foot fence, permanent fence in the area and um that that was sufficient for two goats okay. on top of the the we were still feeding grain and hay uh, supplementing the grass right and um as as farm math happens you're never happy with two you're <laughs> going to end up with six or ten or i think we're ordering six seventy 70 chickens this spring 70 70. oh
0: my god farm math explain what farm math is
1: uh bar math is where you buy two chickens and you go buy feed and they have some chickens on sale so you come out with two bags of feed and four more chickens <laughs> and then the next time you come out with eight more chickens yeah or uh somebody's in the parking lot a tractor supply with a goat in the back of their truck and they're like hey <laughs> 50 bucks i need to get rid of this and you're like i could use another goat <laughs> um everything multiplies whether you plan on it or not
0: right
1: um so we're 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 doing chickens because of the, uh, the egg shortage that's going on.
0: Right.
1: Uh, we're, we're going to try to capitalize on that this year. I figure, I figure farm raised at $6 a dozen. I'm $2 cheaper than Walmart on their dozen. And, uh, I could actually might make some money off of them this time. Yeah. But, um, uh, rotational grazing. So, um, as we multiplied our goat herd and we ended up with six goats, and then eight goats. I walked back there one day, and I got to notice, and I'm like, I got some bear spots. And then my goats got worms. Okay. And I was like, Oh, this this ain't good. So I got to doing some research, and we're like, you know, when they're when they're forced to eat low to the ground like that, that's where the the parasite load is. And uh, I was like, Well, we got to do something about this. And, and you know, we we've talked about in the class about how don't put up permanent fencing until you know for sure. Yeah. I was like, Oh, I gotta so so we're throwing up permanent fencing temporary so we got rolls of of kettle or, or goat fencing yeah. and we're running metal stakes in the ground okay and we're letting them graze this area and it's getting low and i'm like all right i gotta move this so we gotta put them all back in the dirt paddock at this point and move the fence around it became such a huge pain oh yeah and i was like all right well we can put up permanent fencing with gates and move them around or um that's when I started looking into the netting, right? And um, you know, those things just pull them out of the ground, move it, stick it back in the ground, and you're good, right? <laughs> so it, it it come down to um, me not researching well enough, and my animals suffered for that, right? Right? And I felt really bad about that
0: well and a lot of people i mean so just for, to clarify for people who don't know much about grazing um animals a lot of uh, the conventional way to do it in modern agriculture is basically to just t- toss the animals in a, a open paddock um and they can just graze at will and it's a relatively new thing to think about moving them with electric either netting or they have strings, these wires that you can string up yeah. like two or three that won't hold goats, but usually it'll hold a cow if you've, got, um, if you've got strong enough electricity. And basically you're trying to move the animals through the landscape in a way that mimics how natural predators would move ruminants through a landscape where they, they, they eat, eat um, and trample, hard in one spot and then they move along and let that spot rest for a long time and then don't come back to it until the grass is fully recovered and all the manure they dropped and all the trampling they dropped all turns into soil health um soil carbon all sorts of good stuff and so you know it's a relatively new thing that we have the technology to move these animals through this way and a lot of people i think When they do it the conventional way that like you were saying, Joseph, they have problems with uh, parasites. The animals suffer. You can tell that the land is overgrazed and it starts to get bare. Um, And so it's really just a relatively new thing that people are coming to. But then they realize like, wow, this is actually um, pretty amazing in terms of like the, the outcomes for the animal and the landscape, just with this little electrical fencing. Um, that you can use and move around um, pretty easily. A lot of times, you can just run it on solar panels that come yep. with it. My
1: um, mine, mine run on a solar panel.
0: Yeah, so that I mean, just a little background information. But um, <clears throat> once you figure it out, and then uh, then you can do like an experimental process of how how quickly do I move them through? How big do I make the paddocks? Um, it differs by different times of year. Like in spring, I don't know how the the climate impacts your um your growth down there but like in spring it's usually pretty lush and everything grows super fast and then through the summer if it's too if it's like dry for example it slows down so you kind of just adapt constantly
1: with moving them through yeah i'm I'm very fortunate that we're very wet here right so when i move them out of one area it it really don't take a couple weeks Wow, and, and the and the grass is back to to knee high, and the natural uh, weeds and vegetation are starting to come back in. Um, but it, it rains a lot here. Right, so we're like the third wettest place in the nation.
0: Oh my god, <laughs> so it's so, easy, but yet yeah, you're never gonna really have like uh like a dry dry or bare patches from lack of water.
1: Right. Um, I, I'm. It's why I love where I'm at, and I probably will never leave. is, is homesteading. Minus hurricanes is so easy here, right? Yeah. Climate the weather, I, I grow twelve months out of the year.
0: Yeah, right, exactly. Um, okay, the last thing I wanted to ask you about is without like, uh, you know, revealing where you live, I'm curious. Like, I'm assuming your community isn't like, necessary. You're you're not necessarily like, um, in a fancy city or you know, I'm wondering, like, who are the consumers at the farmer's market? Is there, are there other people around you who are obviously the people at the farmer's market too? Is there like a culture of homesteading growing? Um, Does it seem like there's more and more families getting into it? Like, I'm just wondering, what's the landscape like where you are? I'm assuming just like a smallish town in the deep south. Um, I hear a lot about what's going on in like New England where a lot of like rich people from New York are moving in to these rural areas. Um, I I have no idea what the landscape is like and where you are. So I'm curious, your, your, your assessment, cultural assessment of what's going on there. If you see any trends or anything like that,
1: um, 10 years ago, this was unheard of. Um, you couldn't find a market anywhere. Okay. Um, so, um, Five years ago, really, you couldn't find a market anywhere. Everything we were doing, we were doing for ourselves. Okay. And uh, we met, I bought some rabbits from somebody. It was another young family. They were about our age. And uh, we became friends with them. And that was kind of like, oh, we're the only people we know like this in this whole area. Uh, So in the last five years, we've had markets popping up. Everywhere. Okay. And and it and they're still full of a lot of people doing uh T shirts and, and uh sublimated drinking cups and, and okay. a lot of not very
0: homesteady stuff, more just like crafts yeah. and that kind of thing.
1: Yeah, it's, there's still a lot of that. But I'm I'm happy to see to see that. I'm happy to see something's happening. Yeah. Um, but there are more the mushroom people, they're new. This is their first year. Um i started the bakery um i just helped somebody get their bakery started a few weeks ago they're going to be doing another market that's about 20 miles south of me Nice. and uh because i can't do I, my, in my kitchen i can't bake enough for more than one market a week right wow. now wow. so so i'm like you know let's get this going oh uh, mississippi law makes meat and cheese impossible at markets uh for now i'm okay. hoping they figure that soon but um It's growing. It it is growing. Where I'm at, my my particular uh, incorporated township has a population of like 1,200 people. Okay. And that's over a very large area. And um,
0: so it's small. (laughs) The
1: the town itself, the actual city limits, has like 400 people.
0: Okay.
1: It's three three roads of houses, five churches, and a Dollar General. That's no, all up there. Yeah. They don't. Even, they only have a gas station. You got to go ten miles on the road for a gas station. Okay. So that's where our market, where we chose to locate our market at, though we are twenty-five, thirty minutes north of the second largest city in Mississippi.
0: Okay.
1: Um, we are about the same from the largest college town in the state.
0: Okay.
1: <laughs> and uh, we've had. Mississippi's had a lot of um, growth in the industry. They're bringing in a lot from California, from Texas. They're getting a lot of people to move here. Okay. NOAA is setting up a brand new facility here on the coast. Okay. So we're starting to get a lot of influx from other states. Uh, there's no market culture, no homegrown organic culture uh, in South Mississippi okay. when I moved here. But I think with the influx of these people from other parts of the country that have those, you know, if you go to Uh, I met a guy the other day from Seattle. This has been going on for a long time in Seattle. Right. Yeah. Uh, He was, he was excited to meet, meet a a artisan bread maker.
0: Okay.
1: He was like, I will be there this weekend. (laughs) And, um, he's like, you can't find it anywhere. I was like, yeah, it's, it's still getting going. And, um, so that that's that's what the outlook looks like. It's it's beginning to pick up, and that's because of people coming in from other places. I get it. Yeah. And and, and with that happening, um, I think more of the locals are beginning to pick up on it.
0: Okay. So now
1: now that when they drive by, uh, I've had more than one people this person this year God I drive by here all the time. How long have y'all been doing this? Right. This is our, this is our second year. It's every Saturday oh, okay, I'm just never by on a Saturday. I'll start I'll start coming back. Yeah. And uh, we have a lot of military around here, but uh, where our market's at, it's not near the base, so we don't get a lot of military people. But down towards the coast, um, some of the markets that are kicking up down there, they have a big military presence coming to their markets. Okay. Yeah. And again, again people from other parts of the country that's used to this kind of thing are now able to start finding it down here.
0: Yeah. Yeah, honestly, I just feel like um, I know that a lot of people have critiques of like, you know, farmers markets and oh, it's all these, you know, like yuppies from cities or whatever. But if people appreciate and support these small businesses and small scale production, handmade, high quality, like I just feel like this is a good thing. This is just like uh, unequivocally a good thing to have people supporting that. Um, kind of production and not necessarily just going to Walmart for or Dollar General for whatever they need to get, but like maybe actually supporting these small, small businesses. Um, yeah, I just think it's good. I know that there's like downsides for, you know, yuppies moving into places and changing the character and stuff. But um, I just love, I just love the idea that, you know, you get to make this high quality stuff like highest quality, your animals are treated great it's great for you and your family it's something you enjoy like we just need i mean i just think about it also in terms of like um national sovereignty like access to food if there's ever shortages of anything um you want you want to have in your community a bunch of little businesses where you you know people are producing stuff in case that there's you know some kind of shortage you're like well i know in my community i've got x y and z person down the road who all make eggs and i can access them no matter what happens to the industrial system um so i love that I, i i feel really hopeful about the direction things are going in terms of small small businesses popping up you know even like people who you just make a few things and it's not your whole um job but it's a little thing you do on the side um I think of Roxanne's kids, I think they started doing bread. like the, the oldest daughter, I think started doing selling on her own at the, at the farmer's market, I think yeah. bread and baked goods. And what a cool thing to teach your kids how to do, you know, I just think I, 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 like I just support, <laughs> fully support all of the above, you know?
1: Yeah. We have, um, I guess about seven miles from my house, there's a, there's a, a dairy farm and, uh, they've sold to Borden Milk for years. Okay um which is one of the big national or, or regional milk producers um they just got their license this past june they are now their own creamery. cream break i can go to their farm and buy and uh it is a dollar more a gallon but it is so much better yeah than buying it from a grocery store right. and ba- and with baking it, they, their milk has a very high cream content right so it's improved. Shopping there has improved my local business. My bread is fluffier and softer, and with right. all that cream content in it. And yeah. uh, you know, it's they've they've grown tremendously. I've I've grown really well. I'm I'm looking at probably in the next year actually opening a brick and mortar bakery. And uh, oh, Canada. nice! Oh, cool! The demand's getting so high; I can't keep up with it. Right. You and need uh, actual I,
0: commercial ovens.
1: Yeah, and, and, you know, there's other bakeries around here, but down here, everybody does cakes, cupcakes, cookies. Right. Nobody does bread. Okay. I do just bread. French bread, bread, Italian bread, sandwich bread. Like it's just white bread. Right. And uh, people are, I, I sell out every weekend just about. Wow. So, uh, <laughs> there's, a, there's a culture growing and a market building where I'm at, I think, in the next two to three years we're going to see a lot of growth here uh as far as localism goes mm-hmm. that's great and, and and we're being helped by like the the egg shortage um there's a supply where i'm at but eggs were two dollars a dozen two years ago they're now seven dollars a dozen wow um so we we haven't run out of supplies on a lot of things down here on the coast but the price has gone through the roof a lot of stuff right Right. It's actually getting to the point now. Uh, I, I was at the grocery store the other day. Milk was five eighty nine a gallon. I'm like, I pay six bucks at the creamery. So right. It's getting to the point where localism is the same price or even cheaper on some things. Right. Right. So my my fresh farm eggs is six dollars a dozen. You can pay seven dollars or eight dollars a dozen for commercial eggs at the grocery store, or you can buy my chickens laid on yesterday or this morning.
0: Yes. Yeah, actually, this is a very doomer optimism thing. Um, a lot of us think that small scale localism, all this kind of stuff isn't going to take off until it's kind of forced to because people don't necessarily choose like um, out of the goodness of their heart to spend more money. Some people do if they have it, but not in a in like a widespread right. um, scale. But when you get economic um, things that that you know, just macroeconomic forces that that make it so that things are basically the same cost or more on the industrial scale. My hope and our doomer optimism whole thing is like I hope that that sort of forces um, people to make different choices, both in terms of getting into production. Like, hey man, I can make a small business out of this and make a killing right now, and it's not that hard. You know it's not that hard to get started with chickens and to produce eggs in my backyard and it's and you could make you could make a real business out of it um and then you know consumers too like hey well why wouldn't i go support this local business as opposed to walmart or wherever if it's the same price or or even less you know so it's that that's a very doomer optimism point that i'm like I'm i'm like <laughs> people think people say to us like you're just, you're like hoping for the industrial system to fail. And I'm just like, I'm not necessarily hoping for it, but I just think it's inevitable um, because it requires so much input of fossil fuels and resources and subsidies to keep afloat. And it would be much better if we had a million different local businesses um, doing things regeneratively and, you know, uh, resilient local communities. So I'm not necessarily hoping for the system to break down, but I think it's going to happen It is happening. And then I hope that people like respond in time, making out these little businesses. Um, and it seems like it's happening little by little, you know, you still there, Joseph, you're muted.
1: Oh, I'm sorry. (laughs) Um, what was I saying? Oh, um, that's the great thing about market is you get to, to meet vendors and you get to meet locals and you get to talk to people. Right. One thing I'm noticing as all these prices are raising up on everything is people are talking to me and they're beginning to shift their own mentalities from, um, so uh, a couple of weeks ago, I was talking to a guy and he's like, yeah, he's like, you know, oh, uh, when I saw him, he had two arms full of, of bags. Okay. And I sold him a market bag that's reusable That we had handmade, and he was able to fit like three of his bags in that one. But that—that's kind of beside the point. But we were talking about the uh, the mentality shift. He's like, you know, he's like, I've always been one that when I get off work, I swing by the grocery store, grab whatever I need for dinner. He goes, "Uh, but I'm beginning to think more on a week by week basis, right? So he's he's now doing a a majority of his grocery shopping at a farmer's market. Nice. Uh, and buying what he needs for the week. Right. And, he's, and he told me, he's like, I actually enjoy it. He enjoys getting out, walking around, talking to the vendors, right. seeing what everybody has. He enjoys planning out his week ahead. Um, you know, it's, it's vegetables, bread, mushroom, honey. Those are kind of the, the, the eating staples at the market right now. But, um, that that's gonna kind of grow. Mississippi's working on some stuff. I'm hoping they're gonna loosen milk laws soon. I'm hoping they're gonna loosen milk loss, cheese. Um meat. Yeah, and meat and and you know, I've kinda of gotten around Mississippi's law. So if you come to my farm and buy a goat, you want a goat put in your freezer. I cannot sell you butcher meat. I can sell you the live goat. Yes. <laughs> and then I can take you to the building out back and "Quote unquote, teach you how to butcher a goat." Yes, right. So you you will come here, pay me for the goat, and you will leave with butchered meat. Right. <laughs> uh, but I, and I haven't broken any laws because yeah. I I, I've instructed you on that. You know, you can use personal facilities for butchering. Right. Right. So there there are ways around it, but I'm hoping Mississippi gets a little more lax on it you know and
0: and anyone who wants to buy meat they do have to do that process as opposed to hey you can just um, butcher it and and sell it in pieces at the farmer's market you're going to get access to a lot more consumers if you can do that however you know what i've heard i don't know if you heard about this joseph joel Salatin and a different guy were running this conference a couple months back and i was looking into it it was i think it was called the rogue food conference and basically, it was a bunch of people who did versions of what you just described, depending on the regulations of their different states, and were inventing new ways to, to go around the laws, which are, are stupid and usually um, favor industrial producers. So that's why we want to skirt them. I'm just for the audience, this is why we want to skirt them. They favor industrial producers, and they um, yeah make it difficult for small-scale producers. But... Um, one of the things that somebody came up with is you can do like a membership, a private club with a membership fee. Um, and that skirts a lot of regulations where you're like, you are buying a membership to our meat club. And then inside the meat club, we're exchanging for no money. Um, that kind of thing where, or, or you may, and I don't know, depending on the different, um, somebody made like, like. I think it was like a church. It was incorporated as a church. because so that was like the easiest thing to do in their state to make an organization. It was like, yeah, we're just all members of this church. And there's like, we're, we're donating to the church, quote unquote. Um, and then, you know, you donate however much the meat costs. Yeah. Um, so that kind of thing, which I'm like, I'm all for, because I mean, I know I, I, I'm just going to say for the record, of course, we want to make sure people have, quality facilities and they're doing stuff the right way and they're acting humanely to the animals but more often than not on the smaller scale you're going to be way more humane to animals than you would be on the industrial scale and all of the regulations just favor the big guys because you know they mostly write them so I'm all for getting people access to these local products
1: I I tell people all the time you know my animal is going to give its life for food I want it to have a good life right well got it and then, when we do the the teaching sessions, um, my facility is very clean. Right. I'm very particular about it because, like I tell them, I process my family's food here. Right. Um, so I'm not going to give you something. I won't give my and that goes with 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 soap and bread and everything else we do. Right. Yeah. I, you know, when we need a bar of soap, I go to my market stash and I take a bar of soap, take it okay. to the bathroom. Okay. So it's um, everything when you get local um, that's what you're getting a lot of time and, and I know there's people out there that's, that puts a bad flavor in your mouth but most of the time you're going to get what that family itself is doing so if it's good enough for this guy's wife and kids then it's, it's going to be good enough for yours.
0: Right and, and you're incentivized to do a, to, to do it well because first and foremost it's for you and your family so you're not going right. to cut corners you're not going to Put your family at risk so um which is different from the industrial guys who primarily sell um off farm you know and aren't really producing for themselves at all um so yeah that that's a, actually a huge finding from my dissertation work too when people start to produce for themselves and they see it with their own eyes, they they choose good practices because why wouldn't they? You know, they're, they're the ones, it's their own backyard, it's their own soil, it's their own bodies they're putting it into. So they're incentivized to do it.
1: Yes. Um,
0: okay, any last thoughts? Anything we haven't covered that you feel like it just needs to get on the Doomer Optimism podcast needs to be said to the world where, I don't know, maybe questions you get on Twitter that you just are like, you know what, go back and listen to my podcast with Ashley. I explained it there <laughs> because there's a couple of times I've been on this podcast, like, you know what people keep asking me why we moved to Uruguay. I'm just going to describe it here so I can say, go back to episode one Oh one at all. And that's where I, just <laughs> that's where I describe it. Anything like that, where you feel like um, you got to get it out there.
1: I think we covered that because I, the, the question I get asked most is why did I even start? Okay. Um, but I I would like um I, I know you got listeners that are new and listeners that are old to this life. So I did pose a question on Twitter that I would love um anybody wants to contact me and give me their thoughts or just something to think about on your own. Um overrated vegetables in your garden. Okay. It's been on it's been on my mind a lot. Okay. People people will plant uh, way too many tomatoes or way too many cucumbers. Like, what's what's overrated? Like, what can we do different with our gardens to make it more productive, give us what we need and not have an overabundance of something else?
0: Yeah, and you know what uh, reminds me of? You brought this up in the um, homesteading 101 class that we ran together. Um, he, you said don't plant food in your garden that you don't eat and a lot of people have these aspirational gardens where they plant like a row of kale and like never ate kale in their lives and now they're just like i'm gonna eat healthy now because i've got this garden like plant stuff that's nutrient dense that's stuff you normally buy at the store plant it you know and don't be shy about it obviously grain is a little complicated and it's harder than you know potatoes or something like that but right Great question because I think people overplant probably cucumbers and a lot of year. vegetables that they don't necessarily eat. Maybe too many salad greens and they're not necessarily eating all those. Like that's a, that's a really big question. So, only you, I'll, I'll, you you sent this out in a tweet, Joseph. I can link yeah. to the tweet below the episode so people can click on it and respond.
1: Okay, you know, there's a uh, my my little advice for new and old gardeners. I have a I told you I have five by five squares yeah I set aside one square every year to plant something I've never grown before and never eaten before mm. the rest is stuff I know me and my family eats one is experimental right so That's i'm good. not using I'm not using a ton of garden space, so if we like it, it can go into the bigger garden next year if we don't like it, I'll scratch it when we go into something else so yeah. it's it's great to experiment just don't spend a lot of time and energy on it. Yes,
0: yes, I love that. Yeah, that's good advice. Um, uh, Joseph, also, you have some things on Gumroad. Um, I want you to send me those links so I can um, get let those, you know, let listeners follow up and get some of your knowledge. Joseph was a mentor in my um, homesteading class and my home economics class, and he is just the best and has like there i just feel like there's a lot of new homesteaders out there who kind of like immediately just start a youtube channel and make themselves into like micro celebrities and i feel like no, like <laughs> not to just gas myself up but i found these people like like joseph and like roxanne and like jordan who don't necessarily self promote that much, who know so much and are great mentors and have great information um, and my I feel like part of my responsibility is to try to um, signal boost you know these guys are out there experimenting. you guys are newbies if you want information, you can always reach out to Joseph. Um, I think you should do like some consulting and people are looking more and more into you know i can I, can I get somebody who's done it in the south, for example? um to sit down for an hour and i pay you you know 50 bucks to look at my property and tell me how to even get started that kind of stuff joseph's got um i think you have books you have a couple books on dumb road right
1: i have um i have i have a a beginner's gardener's uh, e e-book it's, okay. a, it's like people that's never touched dirt before right so this is basic basic and then i have um I have a couple of presentations on there now that, um, it's name your own price. It's free. If you don't have the money for it, I would love if you pay me five bucks, but, <laughs> um, I, it's out there. It's, it's for free. I know a lot of people can't do anything right now yeah. and and I just want to help as many people as I can get going, but you're, yeah. but I, I appreciate you because I am so terrible at self-promotion. <laughs>
0: Yeah, and you know, and I'm bad at it too. But I'm very good, and I love promoting other people who I feel like need the promotion. I like, I love it. I couldn't think of anything I enjoy more. The whole point of the podcast,
1: basically. Roxanne's book, I plastered it everywhere. Yeah, gotta get rid of this.
0: Yes, exactly. So go support Joseph. He's doing the good work, um, of making localism happen. Um, and he's got really great information to help you out too. Um, you know, he's been through it, he's made mistakes. So you go, go give him five bucks for his books. Um, yeah, it would be, it would be great to support people in our network. Um, yeah. All right. Padre, Always a pleasure. I'm so glad that you came on. Um, you're. We don't have a lot of Southerners in our network, so we have a lot of like Northeasterners. I mean, we've got Jason in the Southeast, but Deep South is rare to find. So it's
1: very cool. yeah. It gets it gets kind of lonely down here in these circles.
0: Yeah, I
1: know. I'm, I'm, I'm in a Telegram chat group. I I went and found somebody to bring into the chat group just to have another Deep Southerner with me. Yes.
0: So you're going to be you're the vanguard in the deep south. So everybody look to Padre if you are um, a deep southerner and looking to get started. He's got the experience with the wet climate down there, um, wet and hot. That um, not a lot of people have, to be honest. Um, and they, you know, they, maybe they've st- started homesteading, but in you know Vermont or something. It's definitely different and needs a different set of uh, expertise and thinking about what, how do you do things there. So, anyways, go go support Joseph. Um, yeah, this podcast will come out in a couple of weeks, and I appreciate you. Thanks for coming on.
1: Thanks for having me. All
0: right, have a good one. Bye. Ooh.